0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 277 for Wednesday, August 4th, 2010. (laughs)
1: Welcome to a sunny afternoon edition of the Mac Observers. Mac GeekGab hailing here from Durham, New Hampshire. I am Dave Hamilton.
0: And here, Fairfield, Connecticut, John Efron. It's not quite sunny. It's kind of cloudy, but uh, I'm hoping well, for some nice storms this uh, this
1: evening. Hey, speaking of storms, and, and many of you will hear this too late, but uh, last night, which would be Tuesday the 3rd and tonight, uh, Wednesday the 4th. People in the northern northern hemisphere uh, in uh, in the states, and I'm not sure if Europe will get it. I think Europe, too, uh, will have the possibility of being able to see the northern lights. Uh, there was a, some solar activity, uh, two periods of solar activity over the last several days that uh, that have. This Whatever it is, and uh, I'm going to screw it up if I try to explain it, so I 'm not going to explain it, but whatever it is that, that would cause the uh, northern lights is 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 coming in, Ooh. and people are seeing it you know Toronto was reported to have seen it last night uh, there were some areas in in Germany last night that were seeing it and and there's reports that you know it might get as far down as maine and and uh, you know kind of middle of New Hampshire, which is really really far south for
0: uh, for its northern it's solar activity. I just saw oh, 2012. Good. You know, I mean, <laughs> solar activity is the. Uh, I mean, after after that extreme solar activity, it's a uh, end of times.
1: So if you I mean, get uh, this in time, check it out. But uh, but yeah, I know I know they uh, I know they were they were they were reporting that this could happen. Uh, they say yeah, they say the sun goes through periods of of uh, like you know it, it waxes and wanes in terms of its activity and things are we're in a we're, we've been we've just came out of a ten year period where. It was kind of very low, and it was actually a very quiet, quiet period as far as quiet periods go. So now apparently we're, we're heading back into a, a more active. So expect all your, uh, your radios and all that stuff to you know, start malfunctioning with
0: the uh, solar flares. And the good news for us, Dave, yeah. is that we can also use it to explain a lot of computer problems. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, in fact, we, we can't can, figure it out. Cosmic rays.
1: We could be like the the weatherman in Texas, and we could record like like three or four years worth of shows, and then just go on vacation, right? And just release them, uh, you know, a uh, uh, couple times a week. And oh yeah, you're, well, we understand your problem, Timmy. It's uh, solar flares,
0: right? Can't we do that? Uh, no, enough right. end of times. Let's let's. Well, if get we down if we it. do
1: that, then we'll get too many uh, too many comments in from the listeners that we're not addressing, and we have lots to address here. Uh, I want to start, John, we've got lots of uh, follow ups and some related tips from our previous couple of shows. So let's dive right into that. And how about we start with Bill? We um, we we were talking about securing time machine backups for a uh, son of a listener who was heading off to college and we got a couple of interesting ideas. So uh, so we'll start with Bill.
2: Hi John and Dave, this is Bill from the UK. Just following up with a couple of points from MGG274. Firstly, you talked about arranging monitors in the displays preference pane and thought Ah. you could only put them side by side and couldn't put them one on top of the other. Well, you can do that. In fact, I used to do it myself when I had a 15 inch widescreen display that had the same horizontal resolution as my 17 inch main screen. So I just sat it on top to give me a little more, more screen real estate. Yep. secondly you had a uh, caller who wanted to be able to secure a backup on a time machine uh, hard drive that uh, if the hard drive got stolen nobody could access their data what you could do is use something like a let rugged safe hard drive uh, that's got a biometric fingerprint reader on it so the disc will only mount if you swipe your finger across it and uh, obviously you swipe your finger across it it mounts time machine can then back up to it but if anyone steals the drive they won't be able to access data uh, unless of course maybe they take your finger as well
1: cheers <laughs> well we certainly don't want our listener's son to be at risk of having his finger stolen but uh but that is an interesting
0: idea uh john did you take a look at this drive i've you know i've seen similar uh there are now some laptops that use uh, a similar fingerprint reader okay um, I don't think you have to worry. So some of the uh, the earlier biometric technology, uh, some of it was actually prone to what I think some people referred to as the gummy bear attack, okay. where you could actually take a gummy bear and press it against your finger and then pass it over the biometric device. And it, if it saw the same pattern or something close to it, it would say, oh, you're you. Um, I think the newer ones now, at the very least what they'll do, in addition to looking for the... A fingerprint pattern they will also do a, a quick uh, temperature check to make sure that your temperature is you know at least something resembling a human being uh, versus a gummy bear or other thing that's not a person so i would say the only risk is uh, yeah i mean you gotta you gotta have a fresh warm finger to fake one of these things out
1: so uh you need to have like a portable microwave oven with you is that what you're saying
0: John? you know that could, that's uh <coughs> as long as you don't put it on high and <laughs> the, right, the, the one concern i have I no the one on concern well the one concern i have with some of these dave though is that you know some of these biometric things are i mean say you get a burn or something oh. like that i'm i'm wondering oh. I, I didn't find anything in the um, in the description of the the drive here uh, i'll read into it but okay uh, i would hope that they offer a backup like a strong password backup Right. Because again, if if you get a burn or somehow you know hurt your finger and your fingerprint is not your fingerprint at least temporarily, then you're you're in a little bit of trouble. So yeah. so hopefully they offer multiple ways to to get to it. And and we've talked again about strong passwords and how you should choose a very good one. But biometrics is a uh, you know certainly a nice way to uh, secure these. Uh, again, I've seen some. Uh, I think uh, IBM or now yep. Lenovo laptops that do the same thing. So a uh, very cool device. We'll have to see if we can uh, get one of these and uh, check it out. Check it out. Cool.
1: Uh, along the same lines, uh, as far as encrypting time machine backups, Dan wrote in and Dan pointed out uh, an interesting thing. I'll read some of his email here and I'll, I'll summarize some of it for, for everyone. When you're backing up to when you're backing up time machine to a remote volume, either a time capsule or a hard drive attached to a shared Mac or an air disc or, you know, whatever it is, if it's not directly connected to your Mac, what time machine does is it creates a sparse bundle on that destination for your Mac. And then inside that sparse bundle is what it dumps all of its backup data into. And, that that keeps things clean. If you've got four or five different Macs backing up to the same spot, they each have their own sparse bundle that they manage and all the data for that individual Mac is in there and it keeps things from getting confused. It's very tidy. However, if you plug your Mac directly into a USB or a FireWire hard drive or do it to another internal drive that you would have inside, say, a Mac Pro, well then it does not by default create a sparse bundle. It just creates a backups.backupdb backup DB folder, if I'm not mistaken, and starts yes. dumping the data in there. However, Dan has figured out that you can force time machine to you or encourage time machine to use a sparse bundle on a local drive simply by initially creating a sparse bundle that has the proper naming conventions Uh, And putting it on the root level of this hard drive and the naming convention is computer name underscore the Mac address of the Ethernet port or the or if the computer doesn't have Ethernet, the main, uh, you know, Wi-Fi card in the computer dot sparse bundle. Right. And so once you create this sparse bundle, the machine will start backing up to it. So with that precedent. Uh, Dan started thinking, well, why couldn't we create a secure sparse bundle? And indeed, you can. What you do is you use disk utility to to create an encrypted sparse bundle named, as we previously discussed, uh, enter the password and have it save that password in your keychain. Then you use keychain access, which is uh, applications, utilities, keychain Access. To move that password from your login keychain, which is the keychain used just by your user, uh, and you move it to the system keychain, which is the keychain that the system uses and is the keychain that the Time Machine backup uh, demon will will look to, and then just set Time Machine to use your external drive. And he tried it, and it worked. and And the trick is that having that uh, password in the right keychain and that way when time machine on your machine tries to access this sparse bundle it's as though it's not encrypted because in that you don't need to type a password now that makes it insecure if someone steals your computer and your backup drive well if they can get into your computer then they may be able to get to the data on the backup drive because it's because the password for that encrypted backup is stored in your uh in your system keychain however if not Uh, If they can only take the drive and not the computer, then you're much better off because the backup is encrypted. So it's pretty cool. A a little bit, little bit convoluted, but not too bad. Uh, Pretty straightforward process. I like it. So a good
0: strategy would be at the very least to have a different password for your user and for the bundle.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's right. Something people right. have to. Have to the, the other thing is, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you could every time you're there, wait for the thing to try to mount that image and then be there to type in the password. But that's that's kind of lame. So yeah, uh, and I, I don't, like it.
1: I don't even know if that would work. It, I don't know how long Time Machine would give you. It may try to mount the volume, and when it asks for a password, it might just you know die immediately, right? It may not. There may not be a prompt uh, for a user interaction at that point because it is all happening behind the mm. scenes. So Good point. Although you know, I wonder. If you could uh, mount that sparse bundle manually, type in the password, and then once it's mounted, tell Time Machine to start, that might be a way of doing it without storing the password. We'd have to, we'd
0: have to experiment yeah. with that. So I like that, because sometimes I'll see messages in the console when I'm doing Time Machine, where it sometimes is waiting for the volume to become available. So right. there, there may be some sort of timeout, you know, where the drive's you know, spinning up or, or yep. whatever the heck's going on. So uh, but I like it. That's a that's a very creative uh, way to approach the problem.
1: Yeah, I agree. I like it. Yeah. And and as Dan pointed out in his email, it's free, right? Because it's it and it's not relying on any wacky or or even single point of failure, you know, i.e., company going out of business, third party solution that that, you know, may leave you in the lurch. In theory, this is all this is using everything that Apple provides with the OS. So not everything Apple provides, but some of the things
0: that Apple provides.
1: We're ready to move on to Charles, John?
0: we're not worthy. So so this is the Charles. That's right. So um so we had suggested in the in the uh last episode a piece of software from Charles Soft. And yes, this is the Charles from Charles Soft. And I think what he's gonna do for us is clarify a statement. So I made a statement which let's say it wasn't entirely correct. It was it was certainly correct for packages. So so I think my statement was <laughs> Watch John backpedal here. Charles
1: Sertzka from Charles Soft writes, there is a factual error at about uh, 27 and a half minutes in Mac Geek Gab 275 where we said and and yes, it was John. Uh but we, you know, that to be fair, we we both have our our uh, a long list of factual errors we made in the show and we're always happy to make sure we correct them uh, where we said uh, because the fine, uh, anything that's a package you can right click on and show package contents and it will do something similar to pacifist. And John, you're right. If it's a package file and you right click on it, you'll get the show package contents icon. And this
0: was for pulling fonts out of a specific backup. What Charles, but then was, there's an installer package is what he's talking. And he's the expert. I mean, having written a- Right. So anyways.
1: So, yeah, what Charles says is if you actually try this, you'll find that it's not the case. Since Mac OS X Leopard 10.5, the install packages have been flat files for which the show package contents menu item will not appear. The older package format was a bundle. So you will see this option on packages built for Tiger and before. But even there, if you try it, you will not see the package contents. Instead, you'll find a bunch of support files for the packages, scripts, readme files, package settings, etc., The actual contents for those files are in a file called archive.pax.gz, which you'll need a tool to open, like pacifist, and incidentally, the PAX file extension is the original reason for pacifist's name. Now, pacifist will show the literal finder contents of such a package in its resources tab, but in terms of its primary function... uh, Pulling an individual file such as the Andale Mono font out of the package, Pacifist is only drilling into a bundle so far as to find the archive file from which to extract the contents, as well as grabbing some extra support files to determine package settings and whatnot, and as such is really not very similar to the show package contents feature at all. And this is the only for packages built for Tiger and below. Again, the package format in Leopard is and up is a flat format, which is not a bundle, so you won't see show package contents. Awesome. Thank you for being thorough and uh and clear on that, Charles. That was uh, that's helpful. And and yeah, it it's good to know that even if you can dig in, you can't really pull that stuff out very easily because it's dug in it's buried in that Gzipped archive packs file. Mm-hmm. Ready? And anything else to uh, to talk about on that one before I move on?
0: I mean, I think I actually ran into I think I ran into one of those when I was trying to uh, dig into the office installer and of course G, GZ is gzip and you can un-gzip that, but yeah, it's right. A hokey way to go about it. The the pacifist is a much nicer way to uh, pluck things out of Well, the but file even if the, you
1: unzip it, that now you're left left with an unzipped package file. Right, which you need something to get into. I don't think you can I mean I'm sure there's other ways of getting in there but I don't think it's it's not just a, a directory structure is it like yeah, those packs? Yeah, I thought it was
0: but okay spice to say pacifist is the best way yes any sort of uh, yeah and I think it's 20 bucks and, and I think it's it's well worth it to uh, yep. whenever you need to get a single file uh, because unfortunately the installer doesn't always give you an option to do that as we saw Yep. some of them are all or nothing
3: Yep.
1: all right Michael uh, has a comment here about we had an issue where, in I think two seventy five maybe maybe two seventy four we were talking about how there was uh, on the iPhone and iPad, there is no way to remove or or reset the previously used recipients list in the mail application short of reformatting the phone and michael has a better idea
2: hey guys this is michael in boston uh regarding episode 274's question about ipad mail you don't have to wipe the whole ipad just clear the mail settings you know that that will contain all the recent addresses and te- you know and unless the user is using pop for the mail they won't lose anything at all and it'll just be, it'll just work. I think, um, you may have already solved this
1: and you may have already told him about it. You may have already put, it on. Nope, we haven't. Uh, and, and he, and he's right. If you're using IMAP and you're storing all your drafts and sent and all of that stuff on the server and not on your iPhone. Yeah. Deleting the mail account and then coming back in, in theory would do this. I have not tried it, but, uh, but in theory could, could clear that out. Mm-hmm one would have to test anything anything on that john before we uh before we go into kevin here
0: no that sounds reasonable i think we we we, uh, yeah the restoring the whole device is uh,
1: (laughs) overkill yeah although i'm not convinced that you know now that that the more i think about this i'm not convinced that resetting the mail settings is going to do it because you could have multiple mail accounts and i'm not convinced that it starts uh, that it stores all of that stuff in the, uh, in, and that it stores it per account, right? It may store it system wide, in which mm-hmm. case, um, you know, if we go out to mail, I don't, yeah, there's no way. I mean, I can delete individual accounts, but I, I maybe if you delete all the mail accounts, but, but even then, mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Uh, Kevin has a comment about, uh, mail and filters not working.
3: Hi, guys. It's Co- uh, Coder Kev. Uh, I'm right in the middle of listening to uh, Podcast 7, uh, 275, and you were talking about uh, mail problems, uh, specifically rules not getting applied. One of the ways that I found around that is in mail to use smart mailboxes um, because then uh, the content that I want in a folder goes to the folder it's supposed to go to regardless of whether I've already seen it or not. Just thought I'd uh, give you that little tip.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Yeah, that will work. The issue with smart mailboxes is if you wanted it moved from your inbox to a specific mailbox, smart mailbox won't do that. However, uh, but smart mailboxes will ensure that any mail that's in the system or matches the filter criteria that you set up appears
0: in your in your smart mailbox. Yes. I don't use them. I, sh- really? I should probably start. No, I'm, I'm 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 all up on rules right now. I mean, you know, I'm yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm up on I'm definitely up on mail app and I'm up on the rules and haven't had any problems with any of my rules. You know, I put them all in the right order and they seem to do uh, what I want them to, but
1: Yep. Yeah, smart mailboxes can be pretty cool. Um you know, different use case, but uh, but they nonetheless can be pretty cool.
0: I, I, well, I think one I could do. So, for example, I, I pointed out in the past one thing that I really liked about mail is that so I have two separate mailboxes, one for feedback at com, Dave.
1: Yes, feedback and
0: another at MacGearGap.com. <laughs> and then premium. So I have two separate mail folders, and right. based on a rule, I put things addressed to feedback in one folder and premium in the other folder. And I think someone suggested, well, you know, you could just make a smart mailbox to consolidate those two rather than highlighting. Right. So what I do is highlight the two mailboxes and then it shows them in a single view as, as a single inbox, but I could certainly yep. use a smart mail. So I think I'm going to do that right. Not right now, but okay. soon. Okay, good.
1: Uh, you know, one thing that I use smart mailboxes for was, uh, a couple of years ago on vacation, I knew we were going to the lake or, or something, And I knew I was going to be keeping an eye on email and wanted to make sure, you know, but I get a lot of email. So I wanted to make sure I was seeing any emails that came in from, you know, anybody on the TMO staff or Backbeat staff or, you know, a certain group of people. And I didn't want those to get buried in the deluge of press releases and all the other, you know, happy haha that comes in. So what I did was I went into address book and I created a client group. Uh, or a a contact group, sorry, called priority senders. And then I went back into mail and I created a smart mailbox that said, you know, put all anything that's in my inbox that also is part of, you know, from an address in priority senders contact group, put that right here. And it worked great. It, uh, you know, everything was, was, was shown right up. It it filtered through all the cruft. It really, really worked well. So I share that little tip because that's what we do here. Is we share tips and other, you know, fun stuff like that. Uh, one, last, one last tip to share, John, from John. Kind of a, a, a crossover from our tips section to the questions section, right? Mm-hmm. All right.
3: Hello, John and Dave. This is John in, from Wisconsin. Um, following up on the Gab 275, when you're talking about using terminal to get into uh, a remote uh, computer to uh, check diagnostics. Um, I'm trying to do that right now where I've got the spinning beach ball on, on my MacBook Pro. And when I try to use Terminal using SSH, as you mentioned, um, when I get to the password, it doesn't seem to accept my password. I know that the password for that remote machine is, is good. I can actually use the Finder on my Mac Pro and... Uh, uh, Click on the MacBook Pro as a shared device and enter that same password, and it works. So I'm just wondering if there might be something else that I need to do to get the password to, uh, uh, to be accepted. The, um, uh, after three times tries, I get permission denied, public key, comma, keyboard interactive. Does that make any sense to you? Thanks much.
1: Yeah, you bet. Uh, it does. It means public key keyboard interactive means that you were typing your password uh, as opposed to having a public private key pair that just automatically allows you to log in. And we'll we'll save that second concept for for another show. We'll, let's focus here on on this one. So when you try to connect, if you go into the terminal and you've already turned on uh, remote remote access. I'm sorry. Let me make sure I get this right. So it's in system preferences sharing and it's called remote login. Uh, That turns on the SSH server, which is essentially a remote terminal uh, server for your Mac, meaning you can terminal into that Mac from another Mac. And if you go to the terminal on another Mac and type SSH space and the IP address of the machine, it will prompt you for a password what it's assuming is that you are logging into that remote Mac using the same short username that you have on the Mac from which you're logging in. So in this case, if your short username is John, uh, then it's assuming that you're it's going to you know, ask you for the it will not ask you for your username when you connect this way. It will simply assume the username. Right. And uh, and you've got to type the password. So you first need to make sure that you're either logging into an account that exists under your short username, or you can type in the username when you use the SSH command. And to do that, instead of just doing SSH space IP address, you do SSH space username at IP address, similar to the way an email address might work. Uh, It kind of looks that way. And uh, and then that will tell it. Yep. I want to log in with this username. So. That's the simple answer. But John, as we know, we heard back from John after proposing this and he said, no, uh, I'm using the same short username. So the the first thing, of course, is make sure you actually are Uh, just because your long username is the same on both does not necessarily mean that the short username is. So before you drive yourself crazy with other solutions, uh, just make sure of that. But uh but short of
0: that, I'm not sure what would cause it to not let him log in, John. Um, now, one, I was going to pose the question to you, Dave. I, I believe it's buried in the accounts uh, system preference. that shows you your short username.
1: Yep, that's right. It's system preferences, accounts, and uh, and you'll see the short username. Hmm. Actually, you know, you've got to get a little bit tricky to do this. I believe the only way you see the short username is uh the hang on i think we need to authenticate in there and then yes we can right click on the user and go to advanced options and in there so so system preferences accounts and then down in the lower left there's a little lock icon that needs to be unlocked if it's locked click it and you get to type your password once you've unlocked it You can right-click on any username in the list and choose Advanced Options. Don't change anything in here because (laughs) it's, you know, there's a warning there that says this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't change anything in here. Uh, However, Account Name lists your short username on your Mac. So that's where you can go in and confirm, yep, I've got, you know, my, my short username is Dave or John or whatever it needs to be. Uh, and then go confirm that on the other Mac and then hit cancel so that you're not inadvertently changing anything in there because
0: it could make it impossible for you to log back into your Mac. The only other thought that I have, Dave, is looking at remote login. There is a section in this Uh-oh. where if you choose remote login in in that there is an option and it looks like it defaults, but but I would check this as well. It defaults to allow access for all users. Right. And then below that is a little radio button. Only these users, and, and actually I would probably recommend that you do restrict it to only select users. You know, the, the fewer, sure. the more secure you're going to be. So, sure, sure. Uh, he may have been there and, and limited it to certain users, and yeah, if they're not on that special list, then it's going to tell you to get lost. That's, so that's right. That's right. Yeah. If, one you other se- thought. if you
1: select only these users and don't add any users to that list, then yeah, you've, you've turned on SSH, but no one can log in. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know what? I wonder if that's exactly what's going on with him. It could, it could very well be. The oh. other thing is the, mm-hmm. it's possible that the password, and I, I would assume that OS 10 only stores and, and confirms your password in one location, but, it's possible that your password that you use on the login screen is stored separately from the password that you use when you SSHN, even though they're supposed to be in sync and the same. I can't imagine it would be that way. But uh, one easy way to confirm it would be to go into system preferences, accounts, and change your password. And that is going to, even if it is stored in multiple locations or something's corrupt, it is going to go ahead and update that uh, throughout the the system. So that would be the other way to do it. Uh, Other than that, I don't know. Uh, I do want to talk, though, about Smile on My Mac, which is our first sponsor, with Disk Label. Disk Label is one of those things that is infinitely valuable when you need it and the summertime is a great time to think about this what disc label does is it allows you to create uh really cool looking labels that you can print on your cds or dvds that you make yourself or you can take those labels and put them in jewel cases or dvd uh cover inserts uh, or you could print a new label for a CD that you bought at the store and slap it on there if you wanted to do that too, John, right? Just make sure you don't make it too thick that it won't fit in your uh, in your MacBook Pro when you slide it into the mm-hmm. the thing. That'd be kind of crazy, but it, you certainly could. Uh, and, you know, in the summer, you're going on vacation, you're doing all sorts of different things. Well, you take some pictures, you take some movies, you Ken burns everything up, you go and make a little DVD... And with iDVD and now you've printed this thing, but it's a blank DVD or it says like Memorex on it and it looks crappy. And so now you've, you can print this killer label using all sorts of templates and art. Uh, if you've got pictures that you put on the DVD, you can actually build a label that uses one or more of those pictures uh, so that it's truly personalized. And you're not just putting text out there, but you've actually got this you know, media rich, colorful label that you slapped on your CD and then you put one in the. Or a DVD rather, and then you put one in the in the box, and you send it off to uh, grandma and grandpa, or whoever you're going to send them to, uh, and uh, and there you go. Smile on my Mac disc label. It's of course available as a free trial from SmileOnMyMac.com, and then once you're hooked, you're hooked. Thirty six bucks, thirty five ninety five US is the price, and they have a ninety day money back guarantee. So you're uh, you're on the beach in August taking pictures. If you're not happy with the DVD you made, you've got you know it could be you could be sitting in front of the fireplace, uh, three months later. But uh, but my guess is you're going to be ecstatic with it. You're not even going to think about it when you're sitting in front of the fire. You're just going to watch your warm movies from the summer and enjoy it. So smile on my Mac disc label. Should we go through contact info, John, just to make sure everyone knows how to contact us? Yeah, I think I touched on it before. You did. You mentioned it, and that's sort of what reminded me feedback at Mac just to say it for the third time and make sure we get it in. There is the email address to which you can send text questions, audio questions, screenshots, movies. Frankly, you can send whatever you want to that address. We've got more storage than we know what to do with here. So, uh, so bring it on and, uh, and, and do try to keep uh, your emails and audio comments as concise as possible to make it easy for us to not only read them, Uh, or play them on the show, but to listen to them while or or read them while we're doing our, our show prep, something that's going to take us, you know, 20 or 30 minutes to get through, uh, frankly, is going to take longer for us to even get started
0: on than, than something that's, that's really kind of concise. And and if at all possible, whenever you can, if you can give us, you know, as best you can, like system profiler, I think is a great tool To help us out here, but specifics regarding the model of your computer, the version of your operating system or peripheral that you're having an issue with. Sometimes we have to dig a little bit and get creative to kind of nail it down. And and I understand all the options that are available on a piece of hardware or software that you're having an issue with. So uh, that is always helpful. And for the most part, that that comes along. But
1: 206-666-GEEK is the number to call. And Geek is four three three five you can skype to mac geek gab and uh, you can follow us on twitter i am twitter dot com slash dave hamilton my friend and co-host here is twitter dot com slash john f braun twitter dot com slash mac geek gab is where you will see tweets about the show and notes twitter dot com slash mac observer is kind of the the parent account for Mac observer and twitter.com slash pilot Pete belongs to that guy. That's been too busy working to join us lately, but hopefully uh, hopefully we'll get him here soon. So, all right, onto onto some questions here, John, shall we? Surely, surely quit calling me. (laughs) Surely I told you that last time. Uh, Don't make me rant about the pig again. So Kirk writes, I have a current Mac pro quad core running snow leopard 10.6. From the very beginning, I've had issues with my system's audio. Every time the system is rebooted, I have to go into sound system preferences and change the sound to be directed to my line out or external speakers. If I don't, the system always defaults back to the internal speaker. I really have no idea why. I don't have any other issue with the system. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this or not. Okay. So this is very interesting to me, John, and even more interesting the second time now that uh, that I've read it through. And the reason that it's interesting is because many of us would very much like to have. Our internal speakers active, even if the computer thinks something is plugged into the line out. But the reality is, at least on any computer, any Macs that I've used recently, that is not allowed by the software. Now, maybe the Mac pro is different. Uh, maybe it's, you know, maybe it, maybe you can do this on the Mac pro, but I certainly haven't been able to do it on any of my laptops or iMacs, uh that I've purchased recently. So, uh, so this is a little odd and I'm going to assume it's not supposed to work that way. But even if it is, it should remember what you've chosen regardless of what the other options are. So uh, my thought, John, I had two thoughts on this One, is reset the PRAM, right? It's a new machine. Maybe something's funky, and that means reboot and hold down command option PR. The other involved one of my favorite troubleshooting tricks, and and that is deleting the related plist file, right, John? The the question is, what's the related plist file? And, and, And you may be asking, how do you find the related plist file? Dave, how do you find the
0: related plist file?
1: You know, John, it's funny. You should ask, because just earlier today, I had to go through this for a question that we prepped for the show. Uh, Yeah. So what I do is I know that plist files are stored in the library folder. And I took an assumption that this plist would be stored in the root library folder and not my user library folder, because audio settings are a system setting. So I went into the library folder. And I created a custom search. Now, the way I did this, it's, it gets a little convoluted. And John, if you know a better way of making this happen, I'm all ears because what I have to do, the idea is I want to do a search and I want to filter down only items that have been updated today. And then I want to sort that by date modified. Uh, So in the finder, the first thing you got to do is go to the view menu, go to show view options and make sure that date modified is checked. If it's not, you won't have the option to sort by it, and that's important for what we're about to do. Uh, then the second thing I do is I open up the library folder, and I type something, even just gibberish, into the finder's search field. Then, uh, so you'll see you have search this Mac, contents, and, uh, you know, that, that's your option at the top of the screen. I change that to search library, and from contents, I change it to file name because it doesn't, actually, it doesn't matter. It could be anything. And then all the way over at the right, I hit the plus sign, which lets me add a find criteria. And to that, I, I set last modified date to within the last one day. At that point, I'm now looking for a file named gibberish whose last modified date is essentially the last 24 hours. I then go delete the gibberish. And usually that uh, that shows up all the files inside the library folder that are this way. And then I go and sort by the date modified. And then I open up system preferences and edited my sound. And immediately I saw float to the top of the list, the folder the file uh, in library slash preferences slash audio. Uh, The file name is com.apple.audio.systemsettings.plist. So you can then navigate to that file, delete the file and immediately reboot system should create a new version of that file if that was corrupted and that was causing your issues you're good to go so that that's my that's my story do you like that john got got any better ideas
0: on creating that find i like it that's exactly the approach that i would have taken dave
1: fantastic well then why did you ask
0: me how to do it (laughs) because you asked me to ask (laughs) but i've done i've done that as well yeah the 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 find uh, limiting the the find a particular date range is going to help because sometimes i guess especially if it's stored inside a folder you may not necessarily see it bubble up to the top so
1: well and the thing is is stuff stored in the library folder does not by default float to the top of my search results or at least it didn't with this um so if i'm just searching this mac and and doing this i don't see uh that file Right. If I go edit my and I'm not going to edit my sound preferences because this is on the
0: podcast machine and I don't want to, you know, I I just did that. Okay. And what I saw was that the audio folder, the date did not change. It's still August 28th, 2009, but I just looked inside my audio folder and I just made a a subtle change on my MacBook, not on the podcast machine, and it changed the date modified to today.
1: Right, but is that showing up yep. at the top of your search results? Because if oh,
0: no, I didn't I didn't do a search result. Okay. Oh, what I'm saying is that the, the, the enclosing folder, the date on that didn't change, so no, it makes no. it a little tricky to find. No, you're,
1: you're misunderstanding me. What I'm saying is that the contents of the library folder are usually excluded from these search results. So... The only way to to see which preference file is updated is to force the search to look to, to narrow the search to only look inside the library folder. At that point, it will include contents from the library folder in the search results. But if you just choose this Mac, as opposed to your specific library folder, it will not show you the which files
0: being updated. Does that make sense? I think I understand you because, yeah, well, what I do, for example, so I'm on my preferences. Yeah. Well, you can create that. You got to create that. Yeah. Yeah. And I did a find and I said last modified date within last one day. Right. But and com.apple.audio.systemsettings.plist did show up as being recently modified.
1: Okay. How, what's your search above where it says last modified date is within the last one days? What does it say above that? It says search preferences. Okay. So you've search chosen preferences. Preferences. Now choose search this mac, right? Move it from preferences to to this mac and Oh, that's insane. Well no, but but it will illustrate my point and that point is that your preferences folder will not results from your preferences folder will not show up when this mac is chosen. Ah that sounds correct. Yes, yeah, you it, are correct. The search results, even though you, you've essentially chosen show me everything, it does not show you everything. It hides all the stuff in the system folders. So you've got to drill down into there and force it to show you those. But a uh, right. handy troubleshooting technique.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But if I'm aggravating, is it, I don't know if I'd expect it, is that the, the, the folder that contains that, its state doesn't change. Nor should it's, it
1: because well, the because well, you not have changing.
0: not you have not changed the uh, contents
1: of that folder. It still has the same files in it, right? It's just that those that file yeah. has
0: been updated. So yeah, and then the the last option, especially with a desktop machine, whenever I hear problems with parameter RAM, uh, last I checked, most uh, maybe not with the most recent Mac Pros, or maybe they do, but most yep. of these have a the, one of those tiny little batteries. Yeah, I think yeah, it could be. Yep. Now, there's a new machine. I don't know. You know, you may want to make sure it's seated properly. Uh, I know my machine has one of those, you know, 3.6-volt yep. little batteries, and I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the newer Mac Pros, not, not the portables. I think the portables tend to not have those, but I think the larger machines tend to, and, you know, the battery may be loose, or who the heck knows. That, right. That's about the only other thing I could think of. But But definitely a good search tip, Dave. Thank you. Yes.
1: Yeah, you bet. All right, uh, on to Lawrence. Lawrence says, has a mail question. He says, my practice has been to use my deleted mail folder in mail as an archive folder. Items that are live remain in the inbox, but as soon as they are dealt with, they are deleted. And I want to retain the messages in the deleted folder in case I need to refer to them or check something or whatever. I've always used multiple Macs, but on my main machine, the deleted messages was on my hard drive, not on the mail server. And I only deleted mail on my main machine. This cluttered things up, but at least it kept it kept things straight. And I was always able to find an old message, but with my life straddling some three to four machines, plus an iPhone, plus an iPad, I felt this was no longer practical. So I started to keep the deleted on the IMAP server. Things were fine and no problems. And then I checked for a message and couldn't find it. Seeing my wife's new machine, a lovely little MacBook, created an account for my, and and I, I uh, created an account for myself there. Uh, It seems the default for deleted messages is one month uh, to be deleted from the server. And, And that means mail's setting for deleted messages is to remove them from the trash or from the server after one month. After being a little upset, I went through every machine and made sure this was changed to never. Then I noticed that deletes were still disappearing. I checked every machine and they were fine. And then I found the iPad has the same default setting. And it's true, the iPhone has the same default setting, too. So Larry has three questions. Number one, is there any way to get back the deleted items that were removed? Uh, I do have a time machine backup. Number two, is there any way to ensure this never happens again, other than begging Uncle Steve to change the default? And number three, should I be archiving these old messages another way? So I understand, I grok this philosophy here, John, because I typically delete very, very little mail. Mailing lists and things like that I delete, but, but any mail that I get, I save Basically, forever, and it would sure be nice to save all that in the trash folder or the deleted items folder because most mail programs, including those on the iPad, uh, have a dedicated button to send something straight to the trash, and that dedicated button could very well be repurposed to send something straight to the archive, and that would be beautiful uh, however it 's risky because the trash folder is one of those kind of special purpose folders and It's special purpose is to make things go away. So that's bad. Uh, So to answer question number one, if you have a time machine backup, yes, you should be able to find the deleted items. If you have a backup that goes back far enough. In fact, mail has an interface to do this. You just go into mail, go into your deleted items folder and then hit the time machine button. And it should bring you to your deleted items folder in time machine. And you can trace back and find it. Anything you bring back will then automatically be uploaded back to the IMAP server for all the other clients. So that's step one. Uh, Step two, I I don't know of any way to tell a server, even if you're told to delete a message, don't delete it. So I don't think we have an answer for that one, John, do we?
0: No, not unless they're keeping it back up, which I really kind of doubt.
1: Right, that's true. They could. Uh so number three is that I would and this is what I do, uh is I instead of using a trash folder, I use an archive folder, uh, which is one I created, so I know that it has no special conditions applied to it. And then I use something called mail acton, which is from indev.ca. And what mail acton lets you do, it's really cool. John, you may actually like this now that you're I know we've talked about it before, but now that you're a mail guy, you might actually listen. Uh the The concept is mail rules are only applied when mail comes in, right? You know, when it, when it checks mail, it comes into the inbox, it applies the rules and then that's it. Now you could go through and reapply rules, but, but by and large that that's not how it works. What mail act on lets you do is define rules that aren't processed when mail comes in, but are processed on keystrokes. So I have a keystroke I I use, you know, control, uh, well, it's control T and I'm not going to go into why it's control T, but it's control T. And what control T does is any messages, message or messages that are highlighted at that time are immediately moved to my archive folder. Uh, and the, the rule is just assigned with mail act on, it's a plugin for mail and it's assigned to it and boom, off it goes. So really, really handy kind of thing. And, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly live, live without mail act on it's, it's, it's a lifesaver for me. So, uh, the, the way you set up rules is pretty cool. And you kind of go in and, and, you know, it's got its own little interface and you can set them all up and you can have multiple rules assigned to the same keystroke. So I could have it, you know, when I hit command T, it could mark them as red. It could add a label. It could do this. It could do that. And then also archive them off. So. Uh, that, that's, that would be my advice. And that way you're still able, at least on your Macs, to archive your messages with a single keystroke. So that's, that's my philosophy,
0: John. You know, this, this one time, I think I may actually listen to you. (laughs) I know
1: it's pretty, it's pretty cool software. I, like I said, I, you know, I'm a keystroke guy. I'm, I'm used to spending a lot of time with my hands on the keyboard. So to have to move to the mouse to drag to archive, it, it would drive me to drink. I couldn't do it. I I couldn't do it anymore. It, it, mail act on is the one thing that makes mail Apple's mail app usable for me because other because I, I, I want to be able to move very quickly through things. And I use the arrow keys to go up and down in my mailbox and page up and page down to read. And then I just want to file and move on to the next message and to have to bounce and drag and click and I would jump out the window first. So. It was it was a hard day when mail Acton needed to be updated and wouldn't work in whatever update of the OS uh, I needed. But uh, but thankfully, that day is long, long since past. Should we go to Matthew?
0: Yes, we should. I think I, I think I got this one. All
1: right. Matthew writes, guys, I have a Canon T1i camera and it records HD video. The problem is that the video is uncompressed. I have been using iPhoto for my picture management. Is there a way to compress these videos within iPhoto? Mr. Braun, take it away.
0: I'm going to take it. So my camera does something similar in that it can record HD video. Now, now, first off, um, I, I don't believe the statement that it's uncompressed is correct. I looked up this camera, and it, from what I can see, it'll save QuickTime Movies. And it uses H.264 compression. So right. although so the files are large, which may lead you to think that they're not compressed. But I can't imagine, because they'd just be monstrously huge.
1: Right, yeah. The only thing that's not, and I guess even this is somewhat compressed, is, uh, is if you're recording DV video on like a DV uh, camcorder. Those save to, it's the DV video format, which I think is actually slightly compressed, if I understand it right, but but essentially uncompressed. Everything else, though, certainly these, you know, cameras, digital SLRs, whatever they are, anything that records HD video in that capacity, your iPhone, flip, you know, the flip cameras, all that stuff are recording it to H.264 and are compressing on the fly.
0: Right. Now, there are a number of ways. So, for example, I look at this specific model of camera. So there are a couple of ways and, and I'm going to talk about both his camera and my camera. And it depends on the camera and the options. So number one, answer his question about, I'm going to talk about his. Yes. Yes. I'm going to talk first, right? All right. Well, the answer is that no, iPhoto does nothing. Right. Regarding compression. The the only thing is that it provides you, it it provides you an interface to a movie. That's it. Right. I mean, if you click on the movie, it's not going to do anything. What will happen is if you do double click on it, and and at least with my setup it does this, it'll launch the QuickTime Player. Right. So maybe I'll go there first. Okay. I'm going to bounce back and forth. So the one option is that if you do double-click on the movie with an iPhoto, it's going to launch the QuickTime Player. Now, there is one way to make the movie smaller. Now, it's going to involve a little hokey-pokey here. But if you look, if you go to the QuickTime Player, and then you go to the File menu, and then you say Save As, you're going to notice the initial choice is movie but then if you click on this little uh, pull down menu you're going to see a whole bunch of options here and as you can probably guess and i'm looking right now so at least my version of the QuickTime player i see iphone in parentheses cellular iphone ipod apple tv computer and then hd 480p hd 720 and hd 1080p so one suggestion now as you can imagine some of these i mean if you save it as iphone cellular it's probably going to make that movie really, really small. It's going to be appropriate for an iPhone. I mean, an iPhone doesn't need a 1080p file on there because you can't even take advantage of it. So, so one suggestion is that any of these options here will make the file smaller. Right. Okay. So that's one tool would be the QuickTime player. Another would be the camera itself. And this is what, and I saw the suggestion for his camera. So his camera, I believe, can do 1080p and 720p. Uh, and I've actually seen some people recommend... And now, the thing is, you know, cameras don't necessarily have very powerful processors. They may have, you know, specialized graphic chips. But if you don't need the 1080, then don't do the 1080. Maybe you want to do it as 720. The other option, at least uh, uh, I suspect on his camera and on my camera, definitely. So, for example, my camera gives me a couple of options for HD video. One is 30 frames a second. Well, I don't know if I necessarily need that sometimes. I've had movies of perfectly acceptable HD quality where I tell it to do 10 frames per second. yep. And I know that this camera, uh, to some level, allows you to change the number of frames per second. So, And and this is going to lead into the the third tool, which I think is an awesome tool that I've used for this. So so the suggestion, again, is reduce the resolution to what you need and reduce the frame rate to something acceptable. If you reduce either of those, you're going to make the file smaller. Now, the tool that I like to use, and this is actually something I used back when I had my lowly PowerBook G4, one thing I would try to do... Uh, and I had the TiVo while I had that, is the TiVo, of course, I had the HD TiVo. I would download the HD videos from the TiVo to my Mac, then I would load them up on this machine and bring them to a friend's house, and we would watch some of the programs that I recorded. Well, the thing is, you know, the G4 is not a terribly powerful machine, and what would basically happen is the parameters for this movie, because you basically was downloading the raw HD video off of the TiVo, these files were huge, but they were also at a rate where the machine just couldn't handle it. It was stuttering, it was dropping things. How the heck would I reduce the the processor requirements to play this movie? Well, how the heck
1: would you reduce the processor requirements to play that
0: movie, John? Well, here's the tool that I found, David. This is an awesome tool. It's actually, I believe, a graphical shell to some command line tools because you don't want to be messing with the uh, command line. And it's a tool called FFmpeg X or 10. I'm going to say FFmpeg X. Okay. And what this does is provides a nice graphical shell, which allows you, I'm going to call it transcode, and it allows you to take a movie in pretty much any format and change the parameters for it. And so what I would do is I would take the video off of the TiVo, and it would typically be a 1280 by 1024 or something like that. It would be at a certain kilobit per second throughput rate, and it would be set at a certain frame per second rate. Well, this tool will let you very, it will find let you fine tune these values so you can reduce. And basically, what I did to make it so that it wasn't taxing the processor on my G4 so much, is I would typically reduce all of those. I would reduce the resolution to something not quite as large as full HD. I would reduce the kilobits per second rate, and that you know reduces the horsepower that you need to process it. And sometimes I would reduce the frame per second because you, you can probably get by with less than 30 frames per second. Right. and that's that's my recommendation. So either do it on the camera, do it through QuickTime, or do it with FFmpeg.
1: X. All right, uh, a couple of other options, it, it, and that's it. Uh, that that that's the answer. Is that you, you, yes, it's compressed, but you can make it even smaller, and you'll lose data in the process, which makes you know uh, there you go, makes it less quality but smaller movie. Handbrake is another option. Uh, You can point movie files to it. It's not just for DVDs, but uh, so you can you can do it that way. And then VLC uh, is another graphical way of saving files. You can use its uh, transcode save to file and uh, and you save it out and, and off it goes. So those are your those are those are two more options if you want different ways of converting I think that does it. John, I want to talk about our second sponsor, which is Circus Ponies and Notebook, Notebook version 3.0. You when you start up Notebook, you see a very familiar white line notebook interface. And though you can't take your pen and draw on your IMAX screen, I guess you could do that if you had a tablet, uh, you can just start typing. And what's cool is it'll auto-indent if you, you know, if you tab, it'll it'll keep that and you can build a little hierarchical notes for yourself and the idea is you can build notes about a specific subject or a topic or perhaps a class you're taking anything in your life where you want to organize all this stuff together and you can create multiple notebooks inside this one application then you can also it's not just about text you can also pull in pdfs you can pull in images if you have a scanned fax you can pull that in And it can even scan through the facts and turn the facts back into text. uh, If you've got a scanned document like that, you can tag these items. You can put uh, stickies on them. You can put notes on them and then you can search and you can search by what you remember. So if you know, I, I know I put a note on last Thursday. Well, go search for everything you did last Thursday and boom, it will find it. If you know, oh, I typed this, but I'm not sure where, boom, it'll find that. So this is Circus Ponies notebook for all your personal and professional projects. Uh, it is your digital hub. It is available at CircusPonies.com. And the price, of course, is a free trial. And once you're hooked, it's $50, bucks, 49 dollars 95 U.S. And if you are eligible for an academic license, it's $29.95 U.S. But go ahead and check out the free trial first. Get yourself hooked. And then back to CircusPonies.com to complete your purchase. All right. We've got time for a couple of more here, John. What's your, what's your next favorite one to talk about here? Um, We've got a couple geek challenges. So pick uh, are we're going
0: to do Sean or Dustin, which, uh, which shall we do? uh, Since I kind of addressed Sean's question, but I think Sean's turns into a geek challenge.
1: Yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll just let that slip us right into that realm. So Sean writes, I've browsed through the web and cannot seem to find a solution I'm done trying to ask Apple support questions. I never get suitable answers. How do I get iCal to highlight today with a different color or in a more prominent way? Sounds simple, but I can't figure out a way to do it. So my thought was, hey, go change your highlight color in system preferences appearance. And it's an Apple app. I can't imagine it wouldn't apply to iCal, but I'm too chicken to launch iCal because it always screws up my calendar every time I do. So I didn't launch iCal. But, John, you launched iCal.
0: I was willing to, look because I still use iCal. I am not All yet right. a busy Cal convert, though. Hey, you never know. Right. But anyways, your assumption sounded totally reasonable, Dave. That that sounds like a great and, and the, the default color is blue, which is what iCal uses to mark today. It's this kind of light blue, which as a lot of people have noticed after exhibiting some Google foo, a lot of people have a big problem with this because it's not very obvious. Right. The bad news is that changing the appearance does not change the color of the highlight for the current day in iCal. So I'm, I'm going to describe the, the, how I came to the conclusion that you cannot do this. So one thing I did was go into the preferences and look everywhere. Look in every little nook and cranny. I could not find anything. ICO actually doesn't have very extensive preferences. The other is that you may want to try, and, and I tried this and nothing really came up, is to try every combination of interesting clicks on the item that you want to change. And so I tried that. I tried control, option. Command, clicking on the current day, nothing would come. I was thinking maybe there's a secret little setting saying, you know, change the color of this. Nope. So the other thing I did, and this is a pref pane that I I like to use, uh, but nothing came up in here either. It's called Secrets. And it had a couple of iCal Secrets, but none of them had anything to do with this value. Then the other thing I did was to hop into the plist file for iCal and look in there. And nothing jumped out at me. I saw a lot of things that seemed to have to do with window coordinates and stuff like that in the last timestamp when they contacted the mothership and and all that stuff, but nothing having to do with any sort of color. And then the final thing I did and do not do this, but I actually may mess with this a little more, but I caution people not to do this. As far as I can tell, what they're doing with iCal is that this is hard-coded in here. So what I did to determine this is I went into iCal, I right-clicked, and then... Many applications will let you select show package contents, and iCal is one of them. So basically, I clicked on iCal, show package contents, then there's a folder called contents, and then there's one called resources. And I'm going to bet you, Dave, and I saw a whole bunch of teeny little graphic files in there, and I'm going to bet you the ones that start with the word today and are the color light blue are hard-coded graphics that it uses to highlight the current day. Oh, i did i didn 't monkey with them but but i almost uh, I'm almost well there were there were two file. one was graphic files, little tiff files that had blue dash before them, yeah, but I suspect the ones that have today something dot tiff are hard coded files that are used to create uh, to draw the current day and, uh, and that 's kind of a right. nasty and that 's a nasty way of doing it now i did now i i 'm going to verify this, but I suspect if I change any one of those so I, I would certainly not recommend that you monkey with anything inside of an application package like this right yeah you don't want to Um, mess around with that bundle i mean i'm guessing i'm guessing if i if i modify one of those graphic files it it may affect the behavior but it may also break the application So, so so my conclusion is there is not a nice neat way to do this and i suspect there may not be a way to do this at all the only thought i have is maybe there's a system level thing other than what you suggested dave which i think is a a good one like we found for example i think you you and i had found with the with the help that there was a system level way to disable the little help the window. tool tips you're talking about the tool tips and we found yes. that it was a system level thing that you had to type in on the command line maybe there's one similar that though i would that, though, it, no it would have to be what you found i think what you found is the way it should be done but ICal doesn't pay attention to it and that that's sad because it, it really i i searched the quite a bit and a lot of people are really aggravated with this because it's not always obvious the, the color it just doesn't provide enough contrast for a lot of people for them to to see what today is right right so a little geek challenge if anybody knows how to convince iCal to change the color of the current day hit us all right
1: okay uh so we have a uh, a question with an answer and a question with a geek challenge from James James writes I really hope you can help me My MacBook Pro sits online, power and internet all day using a spare battery with iTunes, mail, etc. Always running. I go to work in the morning, having synced my podcasts for the day. But when I get in from work in the evening, I have to manually check for new podcasts, iPhone, iPod iPod apps and download them. 95% of the time I have all the iPhone, iPad updates and latest podcasts, but I obviously have to wait for them to download. Uh, And sometimes that can take a while, especially with these larger, longer podcasts. Is there an Apple script or an app that you know of that would auto download all the latest podcasts and all the latest apps when they are available Uh, and throughout the day? Okay, so for things like this, I always start and usually end with Doug's Apple scripts for iTunes, an excellent site uh, where there's just all this great stuff. And sure enough, there's. One script out there to pull down podcasts. Now, to be fair, you can do this in iTunes, right? I mean, you can go into iTunes and tell it to check for podcasts hourly if you want. So that probably would get you what you need. However, uh, there is one script that I, I, again, it's one of these can't live without kind of things. It's built not to address this problem, but it's built to address the problem where when you haven't listened to X number of episodes of a podcast, iTunes decides not to download that one anymore. And it puts a little exclamation point by it. And that's sort of a pain in the neck. Because you want it to come down. You want this new, you know, you, maybe you do want this podcast. You know, for me, if I don't want something anymore, I unsubscribe. But just because I haven't listened in a couple of weeks to any given show doesn't mean that I, I I don't want the the most current ones. In fact, this weekend, I had a lot of time in the car and I had to go through and, oh, yeah, update all these because, I you know, I want the latest episodes of, you know, No Agenda and, and all this other stuff that I like to listen to. Right. Uh, because that's nice in the car. So what I use is an Apple script called, and we've talked about it before, called update expired podcasts. And when you run this script, it updates every podcast, including all of those that have been marked as that. iTunes has, has itself marked as, yeah, I don't want it anymore. So uh, you could use, uh, you could run that Apple script and, and have that be your, uh, you know, update your podcasts and, and download everything that, that will work. Now, as far as scheduling it, uh, you can you can actually schedule Apple scripts with iCal. Uh, there is a way to do that. You set up a little alarm and you tell it when this alarm goes, instead of playing a sound, run an Apple script and you can have pointed at that Apple script. If you want to do something a little differently or you don't want to use iCal, uh, there is script control from appsandmore.com or chronics, which is at code.google.com slash P slash chronics. Either one of those will allow you to schedule a time when you want an Apple script to run. So you could say, you know, run this. If you know, you're going to be home at five every day have it run it at, you know, four thirty, and it, you know, then it starts the process and, and off you go. Now that's podcast. As far as doing this with apps, I found nothing. Uh, it might be possible to do a Apple script that uses UI scripting to go through this, but I couldn't find anything that anybody had done already to auto update apps. So perhaps we'll, we'll float that as a, as another possible geek challenge. I don't, I don't have the magic answer on that one, John. Mm-hmm. You, you got any, got any thoughts on that? No. Okay.
3: Uh,
1: all right. So let's end with a, a, a geek challenge. Cause I, I definitely don't know the answer to this one. And I think it's a, another good one to throw out there. Uh, Frank writes, I use my flat screen as my second monitor. I have mirroring turned off and I use the flat screen for watching video, YouTube, Hulu, VLC all day long. I would like to watch the second monitor in full screen mode while I'm doing my work on my MacBook Pro, the same computer using its internal screen. The second I try to do something on my MacBook Pro screen though, the secondary monitor exits full screen mode. Is there any way to keep the secondary monitor in full-screen mode while using the MacBook Pro screen in regular windowed mode? I would love to know this, too. I don't use it that way often, but there are times when I have, and that would be very handy. Uh, but I don't think there's a way, but if there is, perhaps someone
0: knows. Perhaps. Do you know, John? I don't know. I don't do a lot of uh, multi-screen action here.
1: Oh, that's right. You're not that, uh, you're not that guy. So. Not yet Not yet That's right Slowly but surely We're getting uh, Getting Mr. Braun Up up to the ways of I don't know Having too much technology In your life Yes
0: (laughs) You've always I do want to get A bigger screen On my uh, On my desktop machine It's a 19 inch right now 4 by 3 aspect ratio Yeah I think I gotta get A larger larger screen And then maybe A Mac Pro Hey there you go And they're going nuts These days Yeah What did I just see 12 core Yeah
1: yeah. I don't know if I need that much. But. You do. If you get a Mac Pro, then you can start doing <laughs> some of the audio processing and stuff would be good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Michael Johnston from the We Have New Mu- Communicators. <laughs> How you doing, John? Anything going all right? Take two. Okay. Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast converts the show to AAC for you and for us. c a c h e f l y C A C H E F L Y.com, provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you blog world expo is october 14th through 17th out in las vegas and uh through uh through september 15th you can get 20 percent off of a blog world ticket by using a special code and what is that special code you might ask what's a special code dave that is observer vip o b s e r v e r v i p because you are very important people so that's, uh, that's how you'll get your discounted Blog World pricing. The podcast, let's see. Oh, and uh, next Tuesday night, I am down in Princeton, New Jersey. I think I'm going to be doing a, uh, at their, speaking at their mug, I'm going to be doing a Cool Stuff Found kind of roundup for, uh, for the group there. So that, that should be a lot of fun. If you're down in Princeton, attendance is free. If you are a member of the mug, you can take part in their giveaways and such. So. So that's next Tuesday night down in Princeton, New Jersey. Come out, say hi. It's a it's a good group. I love. I did it last year. Uh, Happy to do it again this year, and I hope to do it again next year. Podcast market, podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine. Your Jimbo from Barebones Software. Disc label from Smile on my Mac notebook from Circus Ponies and Gazelle gets you five percent bonus with coupon code Mac Geek when you trade in all of your used electronics all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network and with that John it is time to get out of here out of here I think we're, your, back uh... on, we're back on Monday right I believe so did you have your caffeine? Uh, No. No, I've had no caffeine today. I should have. I was up till like 3 a.m. I played a gig last night. Have fun. Go fast. Do lots of fun stuff. We'll see you Monday. But between now and then, don't get caught
3: made up.